Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Your Governor Kathy Hochul and Attorney General Tish James are backing two bills that would make New York a leader in protecting children from some of the harm caused by using social media. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt with more. Our children are in crisis, and it's up to us to save them. Governor Hochul cites a warning from the U.S. Surgeon General that says children who spend three hours or more a day on social media are twice as likely to experience depression. Rates of self-harm among 10 to 14-year-old girls have risen by 200 percent since social media companies started using algorithms more regularly to determine what a user sees in their feed. Some teen suicides have been attributed to social media use. Hochul says the companies like TikTok, YouTube, and X, formerly known as Twitter, employ sophisticated and toxic algorithms, and she says teenage girls are especially vulnerable. Do you understand how an algorithm works? It follows you. It preys on you. You don't ask for this content. It finds its way to you by very sophisticated ways that the social media companies have created to continue bombarding you and penetrating your mind with images and thoughts. Kathleen Spence says her daughter Alexis created an Instagram account without her parents' consent when she was 11 years old to play an online game associated with a brand of stuffed animals. The innocent fun took a dark turn when Alexis started clicking on posts about fitness and body image. She ended up on sites promoting anorexia, and she developed an eating disorder. It took years for our daughter to overcome her social media addiction and to finally recover from her eating disorder, her self-harm, and her attempt to take her own life. Alexis is now 21. The measures include the Safe for Kids Act. It would require social media companies to get parental consent before applying algorithms to minors' accounts. Parents would also have to give permission for notifications to appear on their children's phones and tablets between midnight and 6 a.m. Another bill, the Children's Privacy Act, would forbid social media companies from harvesting personal data from minors. Violators could face fines of up to $5,000 for each instance. Attorney General James would be empowered to enforce those laws and impose the penalties. James says the bills are crafted to withstand potential constitutional challenges. And she says they do not in any way prohibit children's participation on platforms where they meet the minimum age requirement. Both of these bills will in no way block minors or anyone from accessing social media platforms. Minors will have the same access they did before to connect with friends, search for topics of interest, and join groups. They just won't be shown addictive feeds unless their parents consent to it. The measures are sponsored in the Senate by Andrew Gonardas and in the Assembly by Nilly Rosick. Both are majority party Democrats. The measures won't be acted on, though, until the legislature comes back for the 2024 session in January. The governor, attorney general, and bill sponsors say they expect stiff resistance from the tech industry, which has a large corporate presence in New York. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gostina. This week, in light of the attack on Israel by the militant group Hamas, I spoke with Hank Greenberg, spokesperson for the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York, about the state's unique relationship to Israel. New York City is home to the largest Jewish population besides Israel in the world. As Greenberg tells us, the conflict even impacts families upstate. I'm so glad you mentioned that because just yesterday we learned confirmation that the first family living in the capital region, a Jewish educator, lost her brother, was taken hostage and killed. And I will tell you, for even American Jews in the capital region, David, we all know somebody. There are members of our community in the capital region that are in Israel. So one of the things that Jewish Federation for Northeastern New York is doing is working with Governor Hochul, extracting them, right, because Ben-Gurion Airport is closed, getting them out. So every person, not just in Israel, every Jew living in the capital region either knows someone or knows someone who has lost someone who knows someone who was injured, knows someone who was taken hostage. So being as generous as we can, you know, I said to, and, and, you know, this is something very personal for the Jewish people, right? I mentioned at the rally for me, right? So I'm 62 years old, and my grandparents who came, fled Eastern Europe because of the pogroms, their moment was 1948 for them. And 1948 was the Israeli War of Independence. And by the way, in Albany, The Jewish community back then in Albany, many Jews in 1948 participated in gun running, going to Canada, trying to find, right? And that was the fight for independence and the establishment of the Jewish state. My parents, their moment was the Six-Day War in 1967 and the Yom Kippur War in 1973, and they gave and they gave and they gave and they gave. Well, for American Jewry today, this is their moment. This isn't an isolated terrorist attack for which, you know, this is systemic, this is coordinated, this is on a single day, 5,000 rockets launched to Israel, including major population centers like Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. I mentioned a nation that's the size of New Jersey. So Hamas in the south, Hezbollah in the north, every portion of Israel is within reach of a missile. There is nowhere to hide when they're at war, which is what they are. So this is, I think, a moment for people who care about civilization. And do we want the rule of law to devolve into the law of tooth and claw? I think the answer is, of course we don't. And the other thing you're seeing in in some quarters, people who are sympathetic to the plight of Palestinians, and I understand that and I respect that, but a recognition that there are these things called the Geneva Convention and the laws of war. And here's what they mean. You don't cut off the heads of babies. You don't take families hostage. You don't have hostages. So I think what you're seeing is this realization that's actually sweeping all people, right? You know, the old playbook ways of thinking about things are being put aside and they're looking at the images and having this, for many people, sort of this epiphany. No, no, this is something very different, very evil, and it cannot stand. You're speaking with Hank Greenberg, spokesperson for the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York. And what did he just say? He just said two things, pressure pressure your public officials, and also whatever you can give and support is going to go a long way to helping the aftermath of this horrific situation. I want to move even more into New York because we have another problem, 
anti-Semitism in general. Just note this from the ADL. That's the Anti-Defamation League. New York maintained its lead in total reported anti-Semitic incidents across the United States. This is in 2021. The 416 incidents documented by the ADL represented a 24% increase. Now, no matter where you go, even though you made a nice disquisition about how wonderful it is to be a Jew in New York, it's right here in New York. In fact, as we're speaking today, there's a high school in the capital region where a a young person took a Jewish flag, pulled it away from another student, and flushed it down the toilet. We've got real problems with anti-Semitism and racism, our original sin, as you mentioned to me before coming on the program. Isn't that something else people need to be cognizant of and be willing to speak out against when they witness it? My goodness, yes. This is a new and terrifying new normal. And, you know, my perspective, and I mentioned this before we went on the air, you know, my grandparents who fled from Eastern Europe, they were hypersensitive to anti-Semitism and soared in places that I, growing up, didn't see, right? Because my frame of reference was, I'm growing up in New York State. And I mentioned before, in 1938, in the middle of the Holocaust, during that period, New York had a Jewish governor and a New York chief judge in 1938 during the Holocaust. Right, So this is New York and always felt extraordinarily safe and secure. They also had Nazi party rallies in New York. Yes, they did. Right, And everyone should see the documentary, 20,000 People in the Garden. I'm glad you mentioned that. But this is something different. I mean, anti-Semitism isn't different. It's part of the history of the world. It is a virus that has never been eradicated. And it, 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 it arises again and again and again. You know, the Passover Haggadah, during Passover, we read from this ancient book, and there's a line in it, in every generation, our enemies will rise and try to destroy us. By the way, that's what happened last Saturday. But back to New York... This is something new and different and alarming. Even downstate in New York City, not that long ago, you know, there were, especially in Brooklyn, vicious anti-Semitic attacks. There are a lot of reasons, a lot of causes for it, but here's what you've done, by the way, by just raising that question. There's something different, importantly, about how we address it. Generationally, uh, from the Jewish community perspective, when something awful would happen and things would happen, you know, synagogues even in the capital region would be desecrated, right? With swastikas spray painted on the walls, Mm -hmm. the idea was get law enforcement involved, but don't talk about it because that'll just stir up more. You know, that might have been a good strategy 20 years ago, 15 years ago, not now. Hate is something that needs to be met head on recognizing it. And, uh, you know, at the rally, Governor Hochul spoke about it. Congressman Tonko spoke about it. So I think there's a a growing appreciation from policymakers. And maybe just to that point, that because of what Hamas did, and we got to see it, it had that impact. Right. You see what, by the way, racism is a variant of it, right? You see what it does to the human brain, if you will. And it would take a psychologist or a psychiatrist to say how it would take basic humanity, extinguish it, and turn it into something that is horror and unspeakable evil. And, you know, you're exactly right. We know where it leads, and it leads to death and bloodshed. And we're seeing it in New York, and it's on the rise. And not just in New York, across the nation. I mean, New York is, it is special. It is beautiful. New York State is this magnificent mosaic, more languages are spoken, more faiths are practiced, right? More ethnic groups are in New York State. The diversity of New York is our strength, right? E pluribus unum, that's supposed to be our national guiding principle. Well, in New York State, it is our living reality. 
But this is something different and frightening and scary, and talking about it as you are doing is really important. Hank Greenberg joins us today as a member and a past board member of the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York. You can find out more at www.jewishfedny.org. Mr. Greenberg spoke this week at a rally and vigil in support of Israel alongside Governor Kathy Hochul and Congressman Paul Tonko at Congregation Beth Emmeth in the capital region. And you show up and there is a line like a Broadway show. And the idea here, I believe, is that we're all, not just Jews, all human beings are impacted by an act like this. It was an extraordinary experience. I think everyone that was there will never forget it. Sadly, I've done, participated, and spoken at many rallies like this before when some atrocity has occurred in Israel. And I didn't know what to expect, right? So the war starts on Saturday. The rally is Monday evening. And mostly it's through word of mouth that people even know that the rally is being held. So I drive into the parking lot at 6.40. The rally is going to begin at 7. And I'm stunned that I can't find a space. And it's 20 minutes before the rally begins. And then as I walk in, there's a line, as you said, snaking around the block. Right, the kind of line you would see, I don't know, you know, what I'm Bruce talking. Springsteen. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And then I walk in, and God bless the governor. She came. Congressman Tonko came. Mayor came. Assemblyman McDonald came. Assemblywoman Fahey came. Many electeds came, and I thank them profusely for doing this because you know it's. Um, Bearing witness is a moral obligation, right? It's more than just seeing, right? It's an obligation to listen and hear and feel the pain of others, and they did that. And, you know, we weren't counting the number of people there, but it was a very large room, and I, I think the best estimate I've heard is 1,200 people packed into the room. This was an interfaith rally, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. Catholics, Jews, Protestants, Muscles. Uh, People were coming together to support, I guess the great word here would be tikkun olam. <laughs> yes, thank you. You know, unity. Thank you. Yes, heal the world, righteousness. And, you know, I think from start to finish, it was about an hour and three quarters, maybe two hours. Congressman Tonko and the governor just spoke beautifully and extemporaneously and from the heart. And Dr. Stephen Burke, who is really the national expert on Holocaust studies, uh, he and I have spoken at many of these rallies, and I spoke as well. But the most extraordinary part for me of the whole ceremony is when you get to the very end, right? Because, now keep it, 1,200 people in the room, right? And it closed with people singing a prayer known as Mishaberech, right, which is to heal those who are suffering, and another prayer known as Kaddish, which is the prayer to mourn the dead, and then finally singing Haktikva. So I'm sitting in the front row, right, and many rows going all the way to the back. It was unbelievable. I, I, I wouldn't say it was the sound, the decibel level was deafening, but it was like a wave of emotion. And I'm sitting with Congressman Tonko and the other electeds, right? And, you know, these are politicians. They've seen a lot. Everyone's in tears. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we achieved beyond our wildest dreams holding the rally because the purpose of it was to give people an opportunity to grieve, to be together as a community, Jewish community, an interfaith community, right? To hold one another, to love one another, and to feel that we could go forward after something like this and hopefully achieve a better world and, you know, mission accomplished. That's Hank Greenberg, spokesperson for the Jewish Federation of Northeastern New York. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The city of Glens Falls is looking toward climate-smart options to power the city. The Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons explains. The small city of Glens Falls is making some big changes when it comes to its energy source. The city is an anchor customer in the Community Hydro Project, meaning all power being used by City Hall comes from the Warrensburg Dam. Using hydropower, the dam powers municipality utilities. It works thanks to a company called Borelex. Renewable energy, like wind, solar, hydroelectric, and thermal, gets fed into the grid, namely National Grid, before being distributed by providers to customers. Partnering with Borelex is Northern Power and Light to provide electricity directly to customers during peak power months, spring for hydro and summer for solar. Emmett Smith, co-founder of Northern Power and Light, says the program works through community distributed generation. Which was created by New York State to help small-scale renewable power producers connect directly with energy users in a way that is economically beneficial for both. It's an authentic way to choose clean power, keep your dollars local, and not raise your costs. You know, we're kind of like cutting out the middleman. The city's economic development director, Jeffrey Flagg, says the subscription program comes at no upfront cost and does not increase monthly costs. We're sourcing local hydropower credits from a facility here in the county that produces local jobs using local resources. Northern Power and Light works with National Grid to pull power from grids and sell it to customers already using the public utility at wholesale cost rather than retail. Customers don't have to switch power sources, but if you succeeds hydroavailability through Borelex, the difference is paid to National Grid. But what about excess power? Borelex's Hydro Director of Operations, Eric Bergman, says engineers are working on a solution for power reserves. There are utility-scale um, storage projects in the works. Borelex has some in the works, but they're early in development. So eventually, yes, um, for for intermittent resources like hydro or solar or wind, that is that will come online, you know, in the years to come. Um, currently, it's getting rolling, uh, but most small sites at this moment in time do not have storage capacity. It just goes to the grid and it gets used or, or not. Bergman says hydroelectric turbines run by Borelex operate like a household blender, but the opposite. Here, the liquid is already in motion. The river is in motion. It's dropping from one elevation to another. When it does that, it spins the turbine blades um, through the, the conversion of energy. That spinning turbine blade is connected to the generator, same as the motor on the blender. But now you're turning the generator, which creates electricity. That electricity is then pushed back out of the cables through a transformer back onto the grid. So we're using the energy that's already in the river, converting it to electrical energy and putting it back. According to the state's Energy Research and Development Authority, the goal is to become a zero emissions grid by 2024 by using a mix of hydro, solar, and wind resources. But state comptroller Tom DiNapoli warns New York is at risk of falling short of that goal. As of August 2022, about 29% of the electricity generated in the state came from renewable resources, with hydroelectric generation making up 75% of the renewable generation. Flag says the city is taking small steps to bet on green energy with resiliency of the infrastructure at the forefront of investments. The public-private partnership that supplies the city with energy has resulted in $2,000 in savings so far, which is good news for taxpayers. The city as the anchor tenant, right, because it benefits the entire community indirectly, is given a special discounted rate. 
So we're actually getting, I think it's 5%. We're getting a 5% discount for the municipal. Uh, and in return for that, um, resident businesses don't see any increase by going green. In collaboration with the city, low-income families receive a 25% discount to ensure access to greener energy is equitable. Jim Siplon of Warren County's Economic Development Corporation says educating the public of the benefits of hydropower is essential to growth. Once you're educated, you'll quickly understand what I understand, which is we've got to get everyone possible connected to these assets and these programs to demonstrate their value, to reinforce our commitment to each other, and to make a positive contribution with every dollar we spend every day on energy to a brighter future not only for us but for others. Glens Falls currently has two subscriptions in addition to city needs, the Charles R. Wood Theater and Pure and Simple Foods. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons. With local volunteer fire departments across the state struggling to maintain their ranks, the town of Colony is proposing a tax cut to boost numbers. The Legislative Gazette's Alexander Babby has more. Town Supervisor Peter Crummy says the shortage is especially clear during Fire Prevention Week. This local law will implement a real property tax reduction of 10% of the assessed value of a firefighter's residence in accordance with the recently adopted New York State Real Property Tax Law, Section 466-A. Speaking Wednesday to the Town of Colony Municipal Training Center, Crummy said in order to be eligible, firefighters must have served at least two years in Colony, reside in the town, and be a member of an incorporated volunteer company. The Republican says recipients must reapply for the exemption annually. Bill Schmidt is a fire investigator, formerly for the town of Colony, with 48 years of service. He says with volunteerism on the decline, it's time for new blood. I'm a homeowner. Um, the target audience, I would think, is our, uh, our people that are probably in the 25 to uh, 45 year range. Schmidt says exemptions add up. The tax uh, offering by the town of Colony is just one part of it. The school districts are offering uh, tax rebate and uh, the fire districts as individual districts and the two villages would be doing the same. While firefighters would need to apply for the exemption at the outset, Crummy says after 20 years of service, a firefighter would qualify for a lifetime exemption. And not only for the uh, service member, but if a surviving spouse will enjoy it as well, even if the, uh, the service member uh, had, uh, passed before the surviving spouse. Daniel Sullivan is chief of the West Albany Fire Department one of 12 fire districts in the town. Things are getting harder and harder for people financially, so this this takes a little burden off people, which I think helps us in the end. Um, and, and for the firefighters that have been doing it, it's just another actual, you know, another extra benefit for them. Other fire districts in Colony include the Village of Colony, the Village of Manans, Shaker Road, Loudonville, Midway, Verdoy, Stanford Heights, Bout, Fuller Road, Latham, Maplewood, and Schuyler Heights. Schmidt says the shortages add up. In our particular fire district, if we could get two or three firefighters, that'd be great. Townwide, as many as we could possibly get at this point in time. While in some towns, emergency services are incorporated as part of fire departments, Colonies is a third-party service not included under the plan. Sullivan also says his district's numbers could use a boost. If we could have 12, 13 firefighters around in the daytime would be great, you know what I mean? So in the evening, a lot of people are home. Um, so, I mean, we have good numbers in my department. We, we currently are doing well. Um, but like I said, there's times 
that it's tough for you know everybody's working or you know so it's up and down he says his department numbers 45 firefighters sullivan adds while the exemption would be just for volunteer fire departments there's a larger shortage of first responders. Whether it be police officers, EMS, or fire. And that's whether it's career or volunteer. Um, it, it seems to be a career that people aren't quick to jump into anymore. Sullivan says support from state government would be beneficial. When you first join, there's a lot of training involved. Um, they're looking for some stipends. The state is looking into doing some stipends for people because you are dedicating so much time. So for certain classes you take, um, you might get a stipend for whatever. I, I'm, I'm not sure numbers, $1,500 for taking, you know, a 130-hour class. Roger Boisford is a 38-year volunteer with the Midway Department. I'm a third generation. My grandfather was an assistant chief and a founding member of Midway. My father was a commissioner. I'm also an interior firefighter right now and a commissioner with the Midway Fire Department. An interior firefighter is one who enters a blaze in contrast with an exterior firefighter who works from outside a building. At 62, Boisford says the exemption won't help him, but should his daughter enter the fire service? And then later on, at some time, she purchases a home within the town and stays within being a volunteer firefighter. That'll help her with the tax, you know. And taxes are getting up there in the town of Colony. We're pretty good, but a lot of places are a little higher than which the town is, so it helps. You know, especially with income nowadays and uh, cost of living and all the things that go on throughout life. More information about the proposed legislation can be found at WAMC.org. In Colony, I'm Alexander Babby. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2341. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.